How many of you were here last week? Okay. How many of you remember what we talked about last week? Three. <laughs> All right. A little more than that. And uh, we kind of ended talking about trying a conversation with God where we started as, hey, Dad. How many of you actually tried something like that this week? Okay, a lot of hands. I'm still trying it, and it still has a surprising impact on me every time I start that way. Well, we're, we're actually kind of looking at the Trinity, that God is three, God is one, and starting with God the Father. But if we really, it's not just the intellectual understanding, right? If we understand God as Father, it's going to be this close Abba sort of relationship that Jesus talked to Dad and called him Daddy or or dad. So we're going to continue looking at um, God, Dad, as we understand the Trinity. And um, we're going to start with a question, but first, uh, just a moment for prayer. Lord God, Dad for us, open our minds, our understanding, and most of all, open our heart and willingness to respond. Amen. I have a question for you. What is lavish? Now, you can do the dictionary definition if you want to. And in that case, lavish would be uh, exceedingly extravagant, over-the-top, generous, even to the point of being maybe foolishly wasteful. That, that would be lavish, right? Or you can try and describe it. And, and understand it that way. For example, a few years ago, there was an Israeli defense contractor who had a bat mitzvah for his 13-year-old daughter, and he spent $10 million on his daughter's bat mitzvah party. That might be lavish. T $10 million for your 13th birthday, that might, that might be lavish. But that, that's not even near the top. Um, in 2004, there was a wedding of Venetia Mitral. Um, she is the daughter of the fourth wealthiest man uh, on earth. He's a steel magnate from India. And he pulled out the stops for his little girl's wedding. He spent a year acquiring the permission needed to use the palace in Versailles. King Louis digs. So he, he, uh, he got the permission, and whatever he spent or did, nobody knows. Somehow he got permission to hold the wedding at the palace in Versailles. And um, they invited a 1,000 guests. So there were a 1,000 people who received a 20-page silver invitation. They mailed silver to people. A uh, 20-page silver invitation to a 1,000 guests, who they flew, all 1,000 of them, on private chartered planes to France for the wedding in Versailles. They put them all up in five-star hotels around Paris. They flew in a famous Indian chef who prepared more than a, a hundred different recipe choices for these thousand guests. They, uh, well, the couple, you can't do this in one day, of course, right? Um, all this expense, one day would be far too short. So they stretched it over five a five-day wedding. But the wedding, of course, starts with the engagement. So they hosted an engagement day. The first day of the celebrations were all about the engagements, which, of course, climaxed with 
the groom on one knee, asking her if she would marry him. She said yes, and so the party kept going. And uh, they arranged, uh, they needed a place to stay. The couple, of course, would need their, their home. So they built a palace in Paris, temporary palace that they would only use for those five days. But they built themselves a palace. They arranged for fireworks over top of the Eiffel Tower, and the wine tab was a million and a half dollars. That's probably lavish. But lavish isn't only for those who are super rich. There are ways to be lavish for, like, normal people. Um, for example, there was one holiday meal at our house, and my wife decided to kind of splurge and buy this really good prime rib from Tuscany. And uh, it was amazingly delicious. So we're, we're sitting down at the table, and it was a holiday, so she pulled out the special china plates and uh, the fancy stuff and the silverware from... Uh, from, you know, the passed down from family to the next generation. So we've got all this stuff set up. And she cuts this extra piece of prime rib off and starts cutting it into these tiny little pieces, gets a small, fancy china plate, and serves her dog. Our prime, that's lavish, in my opinion. I was like, what are you doing? It's prime rib. You're, but, you know, why not be lavish? So the dog feasted on prime rib with the rest of us. I know the story of a guy named Reg. As a, as a young man in high school, he kind of lost his family, but he made friends with this guy, and uh, his friends started inviting him to come over to their house. It happened more and more frequently. It wasn't long before the family said, you know what, you ought to just live with us. We'll be your family. So they brought him in. They set him up in one of the rooms with their other three boys. They... Uh, they started treating him like one of the sons, in full member of the family. They, uh, when he graduated, they hosted his graduation party right alongside their other son who was graduating. They bought him the same graduation gifts they bought their son when he went to college. They helped pay for his college education when he got married. They, they were a big part of his wedding and helped pay for his wedding. His wife was considered like their daughter-in-law when they had their first child. Uh, a daughter, she became the fifth granddaughter in the family and was treated like all the other grandchildren. And they even made it super official as by family agreement. He was written into the will as an equal with all the other sons. That too is lavish, though it didn't take $10 million to do it. It, that, that's a lavish giving of love. That's exactly what we were reading about last week in Romans chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 4 when the Apostle Paul tells us that we have been given the adoption of sonship, that legal term that says you were brought into the family and given full rights as a member of the, as the family. And then he goes on to say, and made heirs, co-heirs, with Jesus Christ. You're getting the full inheritance. There's this sense of, if we really understand God the Father, we have to be able to, well, at some point, we have to recognize he is lavish toward us. He's lavish dad. He's exceedingly extreme in his generosity, almost to the place where it would be wasteful on us. 
that story, or that point, is most prominently made by Jesus in his story of the prodigal. Now, if, if you've been in church very long, you probably know of Jesus' parable of the prodigal. And we usually call it the prodigal son. But prodigal is actually a synonym. It's kind of an odd churchy term or Bible term. But prodigal is actually a synonym for lavish, crazy generous, to the point of wasteful. So we talk about the son as the prodigal because he was crazy wasteful with his inheritance. But I want you to read the story today as if it's the father who's the prodigal. Not wild and rebellious, but crazy generous, lavish. So if you turn me with, with me to Luke chapter 15, and if you're grabbing a Bible underneath the chairs, it's a page 900, uh, about page 954. We're going to start reading in verse 11 and read sections. I'll stop along the way to, to kind of help us see the this crazy generosity, this lavish generosity of God, which is to the level almost of foolishly wasteful. Um, this starts back a few verses earlier. We're not going to read the beginning. Uh, the, there were religious people who were upset with Jesus that he was hanging out with the riffraff of society. So he tells them a story about a lost sheep and the desperate hunt for the sheep about a lost coin and turning the whole house upside down to find the coin. And then he finishes it with this story of the prodigal. So verse 11, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property among them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his in wild living. Okay, so this younger son comes to his father and asks for his inheritance, his portion of the estate. When is an inheritance usually given? After the death. This guy comes to his dad and says, I want my inheritance now, which has to be incredibly offensive to his father. He's basically saying, I wish you'd hurry up, give me my money, and get out of the way, old man. Instead of being offended and writing him out of the inheritance, the father actually gives him his portion early. That you would, could easily step back and say, that's foolishly generous, especially when you realize what the son did with it. He went off and wasted it in wild living. Now, if you read the next few verses, uh, 14 through 20, you'd get the story of the son and what he did. Went to a far-off land, started hosting parties, had lots of friends because he's spending all this money. He runs out of money. A famine hits. He's trying to find a job. The only job he can get is the lowest possible job for a Jewish young man. He's slopping hogs. And he's so hungry that the trash he's feeding to the hogs looks good to him when he comes to his senses and realizes, what am I doing? My father's servants have all they need and more, and I'm so hungry I want to eat the pig slop. I gotta go home, but he's got a problem with home. He's just been very offensive to his father. He's wasted his whole portion, his whole right as a son. And so going back, he decides, I gotta do something. He, he 
builds this plan of just asking to be hired as a servant. And then we're getting to verse 20. So he got up, went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring me. So here's this scene where the son goes back. Now, it's written in a Middle Eastern context, not in North America. Or it's, it's written into a society where honor and dignity are the highest values of all. And so... When Jesus tells a story, he's telling the story about a very prominent man who would have been one of the ones with the most dignity in the community. And a dignified Middle East man would never run because to run would be to dishonor themselves. And so when Jesus tells this story and the father runs to the son, he is lavish with his dignity. He is generously wasteful with it and giving it away for the chance to hunt. So he's been lavish with his inheritance. He's been lavish with his dignity, and it keeps going. The father says to the servants, this is verse 22, quick, bring the best. Doesn't let him get out his repentance spiel. The heart's right. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Now, we live in a world where there's mass-produced clothing, so we have all sorts of changes of clothes and shoes and socks to match and accessories, and if we need more, you can buy it at Walmart or another store, and you can get it easily. Um, this is in a world where mass-produced anything. And so, if you needed clothing, it had to be by hand. Therefore, clothing was really, really valuable stuff. I have a friend who decided she wanted to make Angora sweaters. So she started with the rabbits. She bought a bunch of Angora rabbits, raised them for the wool, would cut wool out of the rabbits, and then clean it, and then spin it, and turn it into thread on her own spinning wheel, and then turn it into a sweater. She figured that one sweater cost her 200 hours. That's just a sweater, not the whole robe. And so you get a sense of how valuable a new robe would have been. This is, a, this is quite a gift. The father says, go get him the best robe. And then he says, put a ring on his finger. There's no mass-produced rings. So to make a ring, somebody has to get the gold to an artisan who then has to smelt it down, get the impurities out. Now take the gold and by hand fashion it and set the jewel. And that, a ring itself is a crazy big gift. And then he says, get the sandals for him, the robe, the ring, the sandals, and kill the fatted calf. So they've got a calf that have been set aside for some special occasion. They've penned it up. They're keeping it with uh, extra fat on it so it tastes better. There's no refrigeration in these days. So what they kill and cook, they have to finish that day or it goes bad. So he could have said, give me one of those lambs, which would have been a pretty good-sized meal. This is a whole lot more than grab a couple steaks out of the freezer. If he's killing the calf, there's 200 pounds of meat to be eaten. He's throwing an enormously big party. He's, he's been lavish with his inheritance, wasteful with it, wastefully generous with it. He's been lavish with his dignity. 
He's being lavish again with this forgiveness and the party that follows. The father has been nothing but a prodigal in the good sense here. And it keeps going. So if you notice what happens next, it goes to the other son, the older son. Verse 25. Now, the older son gets angry. I want you to notice what he gets angry at. Well, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him, what was, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me anything, even a young goat, so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. What's the older son's objection? You are far too generous. That's really what he's mad about. I've been here all this time. We don't even do a, a small lamb for me. But for him who's been foolishly wasteful, you do the whole big calf, you're killing him with generosity. That's what he's ticked at. You're too lavish, Dad. Now, the father is lavish one more time. And that moment is completely missed. He's got a younger son who has been really offensive to him, and he overlooked it in lavish love. He's got an older son who has just now been offensive to him, refuses to take part in his party, then complains about his generosity. The older son has broken relationship with the father too, but he feels justified in doing it. And father's response to him, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. Just as lavish with the older son as he was with the younger son, and he didn't even see it. He completely missed it. So if you read this story, it is a story from the beginning to the end about this lavish dad who would just freely, generously give away his inheritance, his forgiveness, his dignity again and again. We're both sons. He's a lavish dad. It's, it's a made-up story, right? Jesus invents the story to make the point that God's love for knuckleheads is lavish love for people like you and me. The, the good point of it is you are loved more than you ever knew. You are loved more than you ever knew. At some point, though, when we start talking about God as a father or a dad, we run into a problem. What if your experience with a father was a terrible experience? And there are a lot of us who can say that's the case, that our dad was mean and abusive and hurt us and now every time somebody talks about God the Father, there's this cringe that happens because how am I supposed to have this Father and relate to God as Father too? And it, it really happens that way for a lot of us. That 
fathers this painful thing, so how am I supposed to have God father, father and like it? Um, man, if that's the case, it's probably even more important to know that we are loved more than we ever knew. We are loved more than we ever knew. And I know that there are people who have never had a dad. And, and that's been the hard thing. That's been what hurt. That we just simply haven't had a father. He, he wasn't there. And so relating to God as father, there's this, that's a different kind of ache when we start talking about God and father was absent for us. Well, there's a story told by Fred Craddock. Fred Craddock may be the premier preacher of our of this generation, of our day, and he teaches preaching at a seminary. He tells a story of one time that he and his wife took a vacation. They went to Tennessee for a week to get away. And uh, while they were there, the first night they were there, they went out to a local restaurant, and they were just hoping to have a nice, quiet evening together as a couple interrupted. And there was this guy in the restaurant um, who was going around from table to table, greeting people, trying to be really friendly, and Fred Craddock says uh, that he was hoping that they, he would just not come to their table. But, of course, the guy comes over, says, Hello, I'm Ben Hooper. Who are you? And they tell him, and he says, Well, what do you do? And uh, Fred Craddock tells him, Well, I teach homiletics. And the guy says, So you teach preachers, do you? Well, I've got a story for you. And he pulls out a chair, and he sits down at the table. And he starts to tell them, he says, listen, I grew up without a dad. Uh, it was just me and my mom, and I never who, knew who my father was. He said, that's back a long time when um, it was really a disgrace not to know your dad. Um, he said, so when I went to school, there were a lot of names people had for me, and none of them were nice. And I just tried to kind of stay in the shadows and uh, get out of there before I got too much trouble. He said, when I went to church, it was even worse. And I would try to go to church late, where I would, so I didn't have to feel the shame and disgrace that everybody pointed toward me. And I tried to leave early before I had to see people. He said, well, one time we got this new preacher, and I went to church. I got there late, and I was hoping to get out early. But when, as I was going out the back door, I felt this big hand on my shoulder... And when I turned around, he said, it was the preacher, the new preacher, looking down at me. And he said, whose boy are you? And he said, I, I, I thought, oh, no, it's going to happen again right here in church. He said, and then the preacher looked at me and said, oh, I know whose you are. I see the family resemblance. You're a child of God, boy. You got a great inheritance, son. Go get it. Ben Hooper went on to say, that was the most important thing that was ever said to me. Thanked them for their time, got up, pushed his chair in, and went to be friendly with other people. Uh, Craddock goes on to say, that was the point where I remembered that the state of Tennessee at one point had surprisingly elected an illegitimate for their governor, and that governor was Ben Hooper, and they had just met him. So if you've never had a dad, never had a father around, I know whose you are. 
you've got a great inheritance. Go claim it. You are loved more than you ever knew. Becomes even more important. And then there's this reality that happens with us sometimes. What if you're resisting dad? For whatever reason. Seems like we do that so often. We end up like the older son then, right? With these outside the party refusing to come in. The lavish love is his too, and he's standing outside complaining that the father's too generous. We end up in that spot sometimes. For whatever reason, we're mad at God, or we want our way and not his way, or I don't know. We, we have so many reasons for resisting the father, and it keeps us outside the party. The lavish love is ours, and we just turn, turn the other way and don't receive it. There's a story at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. At the end of the, the book called The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis writes those stories on the surface for children. In reality, they're packed full of theology that's way beyond any child's understanding. In The Last Battle, there's this spot near the end where everybody is being brought into Aslan's land. Aslan, the great lion who represents God. And he, people are being brought into his kingdom. It's paradise. It's, it's everything restored. And in this group of people coming in are some dwarves who at one time had been tricked and decided that they would never be tricked again. So they have come into paradise, but they can't accept it because they are refusing to be tricked. They're actually resisting what is happening for them because they won't want to let that happen again. So they're in paradise, and, and they're not getting any of it. And some of the children that have come in and some of the followers of Aslan went to Aslan and said, can you do something for these dwarves? Look at them. They're missing it all. And Aslan explains, I can do everything for them. So he builds this beautiful park, and they mistrust it. And, and it looks terrible to them because they, can't, they won't trust anyone. They keep resisting it. He sets out this beautiful feast for them. And when they sit down at the feast, the food is terrible to them because they won't, they won't stop resisting what God is doing for them. And the reality is they ended up missing the lavish love of God because it wouldn't stop resisting him. What if you're resisting God? The lavish love is still there. But we end up like the older son outside the party, stomping around, missing all the love that was ours. You are loved more than you ever knew. Loved more than you ever knew. Come on in. Come on into the party. Let's pray. Let's end with prayer. Dad, we, uh, we come to talk to you again. Where there are places that we resist you for whatever reason, will you please overwhelm our resistance with your love? Amen.